Well, as I said earlier, we're going to be spending our time in that passage uh, of John. Uh, one of the, I guess, great struggles when it comes to preaching is how do you do justice um, to the Word of God? Uh, and I can tell you I felt that um, very deeply this week um, at the amazing words that Jesus speaks here. So I'm going to pray that God helps me and God helps us uh, to grapple with the wonderful truths um, that he speaks to his Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, your words are words of truth and words of life. And we thank you that you have given them to us. As we look here at the uh, words of your Son to you, please give us an appreciation of all that he is praying for us and that he is revealing. Uh, please help those truths and your love uh, to, to transform us. Amen. Well, one of the great privileges of being a minister is being able to pray for people. Of course, we all are called to pray for one another, uh, but the nature of my work does give me a privileged position to get to have lots of opportunities to, to hear the prayer points of others and to be praying for, for them. Uh, so, you know, praying for my family, for the church, uh, for myself, and it is a wonderful privilege, isn't it, to, to, to pray uh, because we know that our prayers don't go unanswered. They don't get lost in the mail uh, up to God. They get to him. And yet, often when I pray, I'm doing so by faith, without knowing what the outcome is, is going to be. Now, there are some prayers which we pray that we know that God will always answer. So for someone who prays um, and calls on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved, God will answer them. God will uh, answer that prayer. They will be saved. There is no doubt. And yet, to some degree, many of the prayers we pray, I don't always know what the outcome is going to be. I know God hears it, but I don't know what the outcome is going to be. Uh, perhaps it'll be yes. It may be a no. It may be a later. Um, and we trust that those things are answered according to the good purposes of God. Uh, so there can be this degree of uncertainty when I pray. Um, but here we have Jesus praying for us. He's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. And now he prays not only for those close to following him, uh, but he prays for those who will believe in their message about him, which you know, means every, every Christian. And so Jesus here is praying for you. Not all the words in the Bible are written directly to you or about you, but to some extent, we are incorporated in this. I mean, what an incredible thing. I'm always very encouraged uh, when I hear that people are praying for me, uh, and I, yeah, I guess I'd be interested, I guess, to know what people would pray for me. But do you want to know what Jesus prays for you? Because he's told us. And the thing is, there is no uncertainty when it comes to Jesus' prayers. Uh, in James, we're told that the prayer of a righteous man is a powerful and effective. Well, how about the righteous son of God? There is no doubt that what he prays for will come about. And so chapter 17 of John, uh, it is something of a mountain, as I've said, and we're kind of getting to the, the top, I guess. Uh, and you've probably realized that Jesus, in many ways, is, is speaking of almost mysterious and to some degree almost 
ineffable, which means hard to comprehend, realities. You realize that he's praying things of such a magnitude, it's almost like there is a giant ocean to explore uh, just in this one chapter before us, in all that he says about himself and who he is and what he's doing. And so in the next you know, 20 minutes or so, we're going to kind of dip our toes in from the beach. But if we have even a slight sense of what Jesus means here, we have the greatest cause, uh, not just to be encouraged, but for, for all joy, for all hope. But Jesus prays these big things uh, for not just for you, but for, for us uh, uh, together. Uh, and these are things that we cannot step back from. I guess once you hear them, you can't unhear them. So we're going to look now at what Jesus prays for his people. Uh, and he prays three things. That's how your outline is structured. And the first thing he prays is that we may be one, the Christian unity. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, I wasn't born when this happened, but apparently in the 80s, I think 85, there was an event called, a charity event called Hands Across America. I don't know, no idea if you've heard of it or not. Again, I wasn't born, so I don't know how popular it was. Um, But it came out of a song uh, called We Are the World, which I know was popular. Uh, And the aim was to have a giant chain of human, of humans, I guess, of volunteers holding hands across the entire width of... um, United States. So pretty ambitious, isn't it? A giant human chain. It would be a sign of peace and unity. It would be raising money for a cause, I think for poverty. And theoretically, in terms of the actual running of the event, enough people attended and signed up. You know, five to six million uh, people uh, participated. And apparently it's been calculated, if they were properly spaced out, that actually would have stretched across the entire um, United States. Yet, for one reason or another, it failed. Uh, apparently, people gathered in clumps and lines of like four or five deep. Uh, for some reason, people wanted to stand in cities, but not many people wanted to stand in the desert or in the middle of the forest. <laughs> Who knows why? But it's one of those things where it's theoretically, like human unity, it seems possible, right? Why don't we just put all of our, aside all of our differences and stand together? But... Yet we know it, it in many ways, it, it's so often out of reach. We want it, but we can't seem to do it. And indeed, even if we can unite for a time, often it then uh, fractures and falls through. Uh, my first day of university, I, people were signing up for all the different student groups. And I counted not one, but five different groups dedicated to the cause of socialism and communism. You had the Socialist Alternative, the Socialist Alliance. Anyway, lots of different names, and apparently they all hated each other. Um, <laughs> Humans are good at dividing along various lines, political, ethnic, hobbies. Uh, We we ask, why is that? Well, the Bible tells us that just as we have been alienated from God, we are alienated from one another. And we find it hard to exist with one another. And we see that in the church, don't we? Um, Jesus praised this. And when we think about the church as we see it, um, that can be a challenge. How many denominations exist? And even within those denominations, uh, there is often great conflict. And even within the churches, within the denominations, there is often conflict again. So what does Jesus mean when he says, and he prays that we may be one? Is it possible 
Is it something we are failing to do? Is Jesus talking about a reality that has already taken place or something he's going to take place? Or is he giving the church something to aspire to? And we're going to come back to that. Uh, and we'll come to a number of conclusions, but we need to follow, I think, the logic of these verses. And it's not, they're not the easiest bits of the Bible, even though they're often expressed in simple language. But we're going to try and follow the logic of what Jesus says here. Verse 21, he prays that Christians would be one as the Father and the Son are one. The unity of our unity, I should say, flows from God himself. There's an incredible picture here that Christians are in some ways united as the Father and Son are united. And there is, I guess, no one more united than the Father and the Son because they are actually in being, they are a united essence. The Son is God. The Father is God. You know, we say in the Nicene Creed that Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Um, in the Godhead, we're told that there is a mutual indwelling. I'm in the Father and the Father's in me. So that when you see the Son doing things, you're actually seeing the Father at work. You're seeing the Father's character. When you see the Father, you're seeing uh, the Son and I should say that the Spirit as well. But there is also not just this kind of um, oneness of being, but also a oneness of perfect relationship. We might speak of two people being on the same page. And while distinct, the Father and the Son, they are utterly on the same page, aren't they? In their purpose, in their love, in their mission. And it's, I think, in this way that Jesus speaks of, of Christians as being one. We're not one entity in all of our being and substance is kind of meshed together. But we are one as a family. We're totally united to one another. There is no relationship that could be closer. That's what Jesus is praying for. Uh, you know, three musketeers have the saying, all for one and one for all, which apparently is also the motto of Switzerland. Um, and it speaks to being loyal and together through, through thick and, and thin. But we see that the basis of this unity is actually found in Jesus himself. He says uh, in verse uh, 22 and 23, with verse 22, may they also be in us, in verse 23, I in them and you in me. Uh, how are we brought to be united to, together? Well, it's not just by signing a little member's card. It's by uh, union with Christ. That's what the New Testament calls us. We are in Christ. God has given us his spirit and we are now in him, he is in us and we are in, in him in, in some, in some, to some degree. And so, this is a big idea in the New Testament. Uh, once you start seeing union in Christ, you'll start seeing it everywhere. Um, but the Father loves the Son and therefore he loves us. Union with Christ explains how we can experience all the blessings of salvation. It's through our connection to him. And as I've said, it can kind of do your head in trying to work out all the connections here that we're in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father and he's in us. Like, but the point to which we, we have to see, right, the clear important point is that Christ is the center, right? He is the kind of center point of all this. He is the, uh, the conduit of all of God's blessings. Uh, an analogy would be, like, I guess, like the power socket. Uh, you can't be connected to the kind of the grid unless you are plugged into him, which means that our unity is found together uh, in terms of a relationship, through our relationship with the Son. 
we come to the Father and have fellowship with him. And so it's a, a, uh, it's a relational connection rather than an institutional connection when it comes to who we are as being united as people. We're, we're a community um, of people that are united. Uh, this does go against the way that some Christians have talked about this unity. Uh, for instance, the Roman Catholics, uh, when they have talked about um, being connected to Christ, often I think they get it the wrong way around, um, that they emphasize that the church is first, that we are properly united to um, Christ through the church. Um, that's in some way to get it backwards. We're united to the church, to one another, through Christ. Uh, it's believing before belonging. Um, but once we believe, we belong. And so we have this kind of this basic unity that's found in Jesus alone that unites us. Uh, but then he talks about, if we move on a little bit, he talks about his, he talks about his glory that he is giving us. Uh, verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are, I in them and you in me. And we ask, well, what is that glory that Jesus is giving to his people? What is the glory that he gives? Because it's pretty important here. Uh, it's the glory that leads and brings unity. Uh, it's the glory that's going to testify to the world that Jesus has been sent to the world. Uh, to kind of give you a, a peek behind the, the curtain of, of preparation and of looking at commentators, uh, nobody is really sure what the glory is. Uh, there's been a lot of attempts uh, to kind of guess. Some say, well, it's being renewed in God's image and having the character of Christ, or it's being given the Holy Spirit, uh, who is, we're told, the spirit of glory, and we all have him and we're united in him. Uh, to some degree, I don't think Jesus goes on to, he's not really trying to get us to think of a particular thing, but in some sense, I guess it's probably many things. The point is that he gives us something that makes us uh, from himself that makes us one. It does not come from us. It comes from him. It comes from his glory. And it makes possible a, a complete unity, which brings back that question, doesn't it, of, well, is that now or later? Is that um, a reality that's been established or is it something we're aspiring to? And, um, well, I'm kind of hedging my bets in some ways. It's, it's both, really. Uh, it's both, and that, and I think... It's fair and true because, uh, because when Jesus prays something, it happens. So it is uh, an established reality in Christ. We are one in Jesus Christ. Paul is not lying when he says that. We have been brought together to one body, to one heavenly kingdom, to one spiritual family. And that means being a Christian outside of the body of Christ, um, being outside of the church, that's an impossibility. It's like saying you're a square you know, it's like having a square circle. It cannot exist because God has made us one and he's adopted us. And if you think about adoption, you know, you're adopted into a family uh, with others. You don't then get to say, uh, well, let's kick them out. No, no, you've been adopted in. Uh, we're stuck with one another, you know, for better or worse. Uh, and what a wonderful thing that is, that God has brought us together because it leads us to uh, the aspiration to pursue uh, unity, to be what God has made us. Um, and we might think, well, how often we see that Christians are divided? Is there no need for denominational differences? Uh, Christians don't always seek to live out this reality of a, uh, of a united church in Christ. But I would say it's in the same way as we are identified as children of God, that's our identity. We don't always live or carry out our identity 
And that is a, indeed a shame, I should say. That is a shame. So what does it mean to aspire to the kind of unity uh, that God would have us have? Uh, if I can do something of a, a balancing act, there's, I think, two directions uh, that Christians can go with unity, and both are disastrous uh, to some degree. The first is, const- and it all has to do with how you think about unity and what you call it. The first is that unity is for unity's sake, that every disagreement, it's not worth compromising because we just need to be united. Let's just agree. Uh, in the 20th century, there was a big push um, for this in the, what was called the ecumenical movement. Uh, you might know the Uniting Church. There was, uh, to some degree, that was participating in this. And even today, uh, unfortunately, I think in the, um, the Anglican churches, some of the big leaders um, in, the, um, in the communion, Anglican communion, uh, have this view. Uh, but it, it's a problem because unity without qualification means that even the truth can become dispensable. Uh, and suddenly talking about truth and error, oh, that can be a problem. Because what does that do with unity? On the other hand, uh, there are those who, far from caring about unity, they don't really care much for it at all, as long as they think they have the truth. Uh, and Christians There are Christians who seek to kind of divide over every matter of doctrine or church practice or even just relationally. Um, They seek to, uh, they live in such a way uh, as to to cause conflict within um, the body of Christ, Um, you know, splitting into smaller and smaller circles for those who don't agree with them. And and we can, and you've probably seen it take place. It's possible to have a, a sense of superiority that you are, or they are the Christians who have really got it, got it right. But we need to consider what the grounding of unity is. Jesus speaks of unity um, that comes from believing the message about him, as we see in verse 20. And the point is that the unity of God's people, that's found in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's called us to do in response. Because there can be no unity That does not exist in the truth. Unity cannot exist based on a lie. Um, A couple of years ago, I was listening to an interview with um, uh, an Anglican dean cathedral. I'm not in Sydney, in another diocese. And he he said this. He said, if it were up to me, I would not have, I would remove the Apostles' Creed. And I think, I remember hearing, I think, what's the point? That's like the lowest Bar the most uncontroversial truths, I would say, of the whole Christian faith. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. Christians need to rally and be unified by the truth, uh, which is not seeking kind of the lowest common denominator of the things we kind of agree to. But it's actually, as we saw in that passage in Ephesians, it's actually climbing up together, right? It's seeking to reach the truth together. But, of course, it's not just truth, it's also love. That is central to unity. Um, because we can, of course, have a, an attitude with other Christians where we seek to fracture and enter into conflict over every disagreement. But love is humble and seeks the good of the other with patience. Or we can, on the other hand, ignore uh, sins uh, that maybe should be addressed. But love is not indifferent, uh, but seeks the truth. Uh, and... You may have heard that this week there's uh, a meeting of Anglican bishops called the GAFCON movement, and what they are doing is calling uh, the Anglican communion to account, uh, to repent. Uh, And indeed, whenever there is um, 
disunity. Um, to some extent, what, what's going on here is uh, it's, it's good, but it's also sad and tragic because this is not what God ultimately wants for us. He wants us to be grounded together in the truth and love, um, his truth and love. And so we might go from one pole to the other. We might be those who seek to not um, you know, have any kind of disagreement um, or we might seek to be those who are very contentious. We can fall into these traps, but it's important that we seek the unity that Christ speaks of because it's a testimony to the world. You might notice the kind of interesting thing that Jesus says uh, twice, that by being one, us with one another and us with God, that's a witness to the world, that something great has taken place, that God has sent his son and that he loves his people and he loves his son. Uh, It's always interesting that time and time again, um, the mark of being the church, uh, that God says, see who my disciples are by how much they love each other. And I think one of the biggest barriers uh, to evangelism, uh, to our witness, is not so much the, the methods or the programs or the resources that we have, but it can be our character. It's when I think we fail to live up to the unity to which God has called us, um, whether that's in, in gossip or other kinds of conflict or even just apathy towards one another. What that does is that actually speaks. Um, that speaks to people. And in many ways, that actually veils the gospel of God, which declares salvation. Uh, because what does it say to the world if we as believers cannot get along with one another? What does that say about the message to which we hold? I've had many a, a non-believer say that to me. And I mean, that doesn't mean I have therefore nothing to say because so often we do fall short. But, but there is something there that Jesus gives us a challenge to see the kind of unity that is to be operating as his knowledge of him and as his love is operating in us and binds us together. The way we act does say something to those around us. So we've talked about unity, but now Jesus prays that we would be with him in glory. Not only would we be one, but that we would be with him. Verse 24, Father, I want you, uh, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. Uh, What is Christ asking for here? Is it that we would be in heaven with him right now? Well, obviously it's not yet the time, but it is only a matter of time. I'm sure I'm not the only person who has said it would be much easier or would feel much easier right now if Jesus was standing here right beside me as I'm going through life. And yet... He tells us in the Gospels that he is doing something much more important. He is preparing a place for us. He tells this to his disciples who are probably thinking the same thing that I was when he talked about going. He says that we should not let our hearts be troubled because he is going to prepare a place for us. And the wonderful truth here is that Jesus wants you. He wants you to be with him. And he anticipates that. Uh, I think we have the wonderful joy, don't we, of anticipating when a friend or a family member who we haven't seen is coming to visit our house and we know they're coming any moment and we're just waiting and getting ready. Well, Jesus is eagerly waiting for you to join him. And he refers to us and the church as those given to him by God the Father. And that says something incredible, I think. That says that God didn't start to love you when you became 
friends with him through Christ. The wonderful comfort of election, of God's sovereign choice in eternity to bring people to Jesus, that means that it's no fluke that you are a Christian. It's actually the plan of God from eternity past to bring you to his son. We haven't done anything at all to deserve it. We didn't even exist. But he has loved us. And he is, you know, if he's loved us in the past, then we can be sure that he's going to bring us to the end of all things, glory. Uh, my son is now at the age where, I mean, he's been at the age for a little while, but when the children learn the question why, ugh, terrible question to learn. Uh, you know, they, they, they just, I think they have the instinctive mode to do the, the why chain, uh, where every answer you give then leads to another why. But if we draw ourselves on this why chain and we go all the way back, like why is it that we are? Why is it that we exist? That anything happened at all? Well, I think we have the answer here. I mean, we have the answer to all things here. Incredible. The Father loves the Son with a love that is eternal and absolute. And therefore, the plan has always been that Christ would be glorified. That's the reason for everything. That Christ would be glorified. That he would be the Lord. And all in heaven and on earth and under the earth would behold his glory. That's the end of all things. And that is actually the Christian kind of hope at the end. Uh, What does this look like to some degree? I have no idea. We get little glimpses of heaven, but I don't know. Uh, My parents told me when I was a little kid that we were going to Disneyland Paris. And I had no idea what that meant, but I knew I wanted to go there. I had enough knowledge to know I wanted to go there. And I did, and it was great. And that's a small glory, but this is so much. I mean, so, so, so much more. It's one thing, I guess, to see a wonderful thing, something beautiful, truly beautiful, and kind of glory in it and, and be changed, well, and, and to be, yeah, changed by it as we see it. Well, that's what this speaks of, beholding the glory of God, which changes us forever. Uh, theologians of old called this the beatific vision, right? Which is literally the vision that makes you happy. Uh, it's always good to have the end in sight, especially in the day-to-day, when kind of we exist in the fog of the day-to-day of what's coming now or next week, and even our long-term plans compared to eternity, uh, basically a weekend. We don't want to be distracted from the glory of Christ. We, it's important to see what is actually coming, our, our destiny, where all things are heading. That's where we are going. And therefore, he is the one that, that matters. And finally... It, Jesus wants us to know him and his love. Verse 25 and 26, it doesn't really seem to refer to a, uh, a future destiny, but a present reality. It's the current state of affairs. And guess what? It's good news. It's really good news. Uh, we can worry, as Jesus says, I think, um, you know, that the world does not know him. Uh, and I think the Western world has been a bit of an anomaly in that, of what's actually been the case in some sense in most of history, that it hasn't been all that uh, fond of Christianity. Um, and now I guess the West is kind of changing and catching up uh, and it's kind of shedding a lot of uh, kind of what we might call Christian culture or um, many Christian roots and the ways it's been influenced by Christianity. And so we can worry. We can think, well, what's the future for Christian's going to be here in Australia. Is it going to get more difficult to practice our faith? And indeed, what about our children? 
There are going to be all sorts of other influences that seek to sell them a different way of life with different goals and different objects for worship. But that's always been the case, really. We can never expect the world to encourage or support us in seeking Jesus. The promise, the wonderful promise here, uh, is that Christ has made himself known and he will continue to do so. Every week we gather around his word. God has preserved his word. We gather around it and we can hear from it. We can hear from him so we can know him. And therefore, even though we don't see him, we can walk by faith and not by, and not by sight. And therefore, we can then experience, if we know him, we can experience the love that he has for us. Uh, someone somewhere once said, don't know who it is, uh, heaven is a world of love. I think that's right. Love has been the dominant theme. Well, one of the, sorry, I should say, one of the dominant themes of this section. You look at all the times that love actually pops up. The father's love, the son, and he's loved Christ's people and he's drawn together. He wants us to see the love that he has. And therefore, the love of God comes forth to do its work in us. Love is the thing that binds us. And indeed, many, in many ways, love is, love is a goal. Uh, let us love one another, for love comes from God, John says. Love is the key sign of God's church, that he is at work. And that is an enormous challenge to us. We all think, oh, yeah, love, that's great. Who doesn't love? You know, who doesn't want to be loved? We all do. But it can be really hard, uh, especially because so often we go and have a, a kind of a self-centered view of ourselves and of our life, even when it comes to church. Um, so often we can come to church and think, well, I'm here to be spiritually grown and spiritually fed. And that's true. You are here to be grown and fed. But you're not only here for that, Right? You are here to, to give to others. You're here to love others. And so that can mean many things. What does it mean to love? Well, part of it means we, that we are not apathetic towards one another. Uh, but we want to see and know uh, one another and bear and be kind with one another. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say on what love looks like in practice. But all of that comes back to the Lord. Uh, and that is the reality in which we are to live. So that is a huge challenge again. So, brothers and sisters, as we conclude, you have been prayed for by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you encouraged? I hope you are. How could you not be? You know, the wonderful reality is that despite all the kind of the visible contradictions of this life, the way the world is and the church can just seem an absolute mess, that one thing, one day all things will uh, be resolved. The church will one day, well, the church which is one in Christ will one day be perfectly one in glory. Uh, that all Christians will one day love one another uh, perfectly as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. You know, that there is that unity there. There is that destiny to which we're heading and the reality which we are now called to live in. So let us seek to live uh, in a reality that is um, shaped by a unity uh, which you know, finds itself in love and in, and in truth. Um, I think that is what will keep us fruitful. That is what will deliver us from, I guess, a despair and hopelessness. Because at the end of the day, we see uh, that it's all about Jesus. He is the center, and it's all heading towards him. So I'm going to pray now uh, that with these big things that Jesus has said and prayed for us, uh, that he will be bringing them about in our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son is our mediator, that he bridges us to you. Thank you that he prays for us. 
and that you love him and these prayers will, will come true. They already have come true and they will continue to be true. Thank you that you give us unity, that you are leading us to a glorious destiny and right now we can experience the wonderful reality of your love. We pray that these things would be close to our hearts and indeed first in our hearts as we seek to see your, uh, one day see your son's glory that will transform us. And so we pray in the meantime that you would help us to love, you would help us to be unified, you would remove the barriers that would cause us uh, to not seek the good of others. And we pray that your love would just overflow uh, to one another so that the world might know that you are, uh, you, sorry, you have sent your son, the son you have loved and the son who is Lord of all. In his name we pray. Amen.